Hello, and welcome to another episode of Biohacking with Brittany. If you are new here or if you're returning, I am so excited to have you joining me. I am a registered holistic nutritionist, a biohacker, and wellness fanatic, and health, I don't want to say health guru, but health lover, health nut. And this is a place where I kind of just share my journey. And it's, yeah, it's pretty personal sometimes. I have experts on who teach me a lot every single time that I have them on. And I love to just share that with my audience. So thank you for tuning in. I am really excited to be announcing a giveaway that I'm doing. And it's not a giveaway with anybody else. It's just a giveaway with me. I am going to give away a free consultation with myself. I, As I said, I am a nutritionist and this is what I do. I work with clients one-on-one and I'm going to do a giveaway for it. And the way that you enter is through leaving a review on this podcast on iTunes. I'm running the giveaway starting today and it's going to run for two weeks and I'm going to promote it on social media as well and my newsletter. And all of the people who leave a iTunes review in the next 14 days will be eligible to win a free consultation with me. And so that opens today, January 13th. During these consultations, like for this one, it will be a one hour consultation. You will get a meal plan as well that's seven days and filled with recipes, a grocery list, all sorts of things like that, supplement recommendations and nutrition recommendations and lifestyle and biohacking recommendations as well. And obviously an hour with me, which will be really fun. And we will dive into kind of what's going on with your health, whether it's gut health issues, whether it's hormones, fertility, acne, skin, anything like that, we will do it. So please leave a review. I will read them. And for the next two weeks, I will probably read a few of them out loud on on the show actually next week, some of the top contenders. And then I'm going to pick at random who the winner is going to be. Obviously, it's not going to (laughs) be based on the type of review, but it'll just be at random. So please leave a review. It really helps the show grow and, and be expanded and reach more people. I have very you know, specific targets that I've set for this year, which is really exciting. Previously, when I've had this podcast, I've never really, I've never really set like goals with it. It's always been very organic and just kind of, let's just see how it goes and let's just let it do its thing. But this year, after so many episodes last year, I think I released like 50 or 51 episodes, almost one a week and so much growth in it. I was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put some real thought into this in terms of like where I want it to go. So the reviews are a big part of that. So thank you for taking the time to do that. That means a lot to me. And I hope your new year is going well. I am sitting here, I'm brewing my herbal tea right now. It's one of those things where <laughs> it's too hot for me to drink, but I want to drink it. But I've burnt my tongue so many times on hot coffee and hot tea that I'm just going to wait for it to be done. I always just get too excited for it and just burn my tongue. But yeah, thank you to everybody who has been commenting as well on all of my Instagram posts and reels and everything as well this month. I posted a photo this week on my feelings about eating animals and meat and got so many people responding to me, sending me DMs. And it was really interesting. And I'm not going to read it read because you can go find it and just read the full thing yourself. But basically, I was just saying how I feel. I have very mixed feelings about eating animals and, and eating meat because on the one hand, I think it's so beneficial for our health. And I think that there's, I feel better eating meat and eggs and dairy and and that type of thing. And it's so nutrient dense and, and there's just so much to it that I think we benefit from as humans when we eat it. But on the flip side, I think that I am concerned about its impact on the environment. And I also hate that we take life when we eat it. So that was like primarily what I spoke about on the post was like, how I could never hunt 
or I could never kill anything and then eat it. Like I, I just have this, like, I, I would just feel too bad. And I, even like when things have like a face on them and then to eat it, I really struggle with. If you go to a restaurant and you order a lobster type of thing, and then to just eat it while it still fully looks like a lobster is difficult for me versus eating a steak, which when you just look at it, it looks nothing like an actual cow, right? So it's that disassociation with the animal that it came from that allows me to eat animal products easier. But that is so interesting in itself because that just shows you how far removed we are from the food that we're eating. And a lot of people responded saying that, like, I grew up on a farm or I live on a farm and we eat the meat that we raise in our farm. And like, I knew the cow that the steak is coming from and I feel totally fine about it. And like just so many different perspectives and it's so interesting. And I, I was really happy with how much feedback I got on that and how many people actually resonate with that and feel the same way of like, yeah, I don't want to take life, but I actually do feel better when I have animal products and I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan. So that was really cool. Um, and yeah, and I actually want to do more. I was thinking about this. I want to do more research into regenerative farming and conventional farming. Like I know the basics, but I actually, I must look it up. I saw this video, maybe one of you will know, but I saw this video or like this article, but I didn't fully read it. And it was a few weeks ago and it was describing a different type of farming. Let me just look it up. It wasn't called regenerative farming. It was called like wild farming or wilding or, oh, rewilding. Oh, I forgot. I'll have to find it. But basically it's like a step further than regenerative farming. And what it is, is that the farmer is basically fully hands-off. So there's all this, all of these different types of plants, there's all of these different types of animals, and they roam freely on this like acreage. And the farmer will benefit from whatever crops come and how the animals die and like that type of thing. But the farmer just literally just lets it do what it needs to do without being super involved or monocropping or feeding the animals, right? And feeding them something that they're not used to getting or antibiotics or hormones or anything like that. So I must look it up and actually watch it because it was before I started talking about it online and now it's very uh, front of mind for me. So I will try to look that up and post about it after. Yeah. So that's kind of on my mind right now is just that because obviously I've talked about this a bit, but I'm kind of experimenting with carnivore kind of like one day on one day off type of thing right now. I'm not being strict about it. I'm not, yeah, I don't want to feel like it's restrictive and then I don't want to binge in the other direction. So I, I just want to be cautious of that and, and conscience and conscious of that as well, just because dieting can kind of do that for everybody listening. Who's ever followed a diet knows that it's very easy to become neurotic about it and then indulge and then feel guilty and shame and all of those feelings if you're suddenly not following it. Um, and that's something that I've definitely dealt with in the past. So I'm being very like lax with it. And yeah, I'm experimenting. I'm figuring it out. So I don't have any, I I'm not, you know, hard about it or not black and white about it. And I, I think that's the way to go. So today's episode is very cool because we're talking about Alzheimer's and this is something that I haven't really talked about a lot before. It's something that I've seen in family members and what's very interesting and you'll hear Christina's story today is that she was talking about how this type of thing actually starts like 20 years before it's first before it first shows up. So before the doctor says anything on that 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 appointment or before the first signs are there or symptoms, it's 20 years before. And the way she explains the science behind that is really fascinating. So if you have anybody in your life who's gone through it, I'm sure you'll relate to this episode. I know I definitely did. And yeah, it means a lot. 
It definitely, definitely means a lot. So as always, thank you so much for listening. This week, my sponsor is Sensate for this episode. I love Sensate. I talked about them last year, actually quite a bit in the summer. This is a device that you hang around your neck and it basically emits vibrations that help reduce through like sonic resonance and it's really calming because it, it vibrates the vagus nerve. So it's really cool. So shout out to Sensei. The link is in the show notes and it's on my shop page as well on biohackingbrightening.com. So definitely check that out. And thank you for listening. I look forward to having you join me next week as well. Welcome to a, another episode of Biohacking with Brittany. I am so excited that you're here today joining me. And as always, we are talking about new topics today, things that I haven't dove into yet, but have kind of been in the back of my mind. And we have Christina Espudo on with us, who is also a holistic nutritionist, just like myself. She has a book out called The Two Little F Words, which are fasting and feasting, which I love. And she's also a Red Seal chef. So Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So excited to talk about all these topics. And um, I love what you do. So I'm so happy that we've finally been able to connect. Yeah, yeah, me too. So let's talk about your story. Where did this passion for functional medicine and functional health and holistic nutrition really come from? Great question. So my my passion for holistic nutrition started in about 2006 when I went to holistic nutrition school in Calgary, Alberta. And after that, I decided to incorporate my Red Seal Chef designation with my holistic nutrition and start my company, Honey and Vanilla. And it was primarily catering to busy families, busy couples that didn't have time to cook for themselves and wanted to cook, wanted to have delicious, nutritious, nutrient-dense whole foods. And I was able to provide that for them. And then it just turned into even more. I became really, really passionate about functional medicine once my mom was diagnosed with MCI, mild cognitive impairment, when she was 63, which is about eight years ago, seven or eight years ago. And that's when I went deep into functional medicine and, and studied the work of Dr. Bredesen and others that have been literally reversing or slowing the progression of specifically Alzheimer's disease. And that's when I just became more and more interested in the possibility of thinking outside the box, not succumbing to, well, my mom has Alzheimer's, there's nothing that I can do, and we just have to give in. And if anybody knows me, and probably many of your your followers don't know me yet, but I just don't, I don't really go with that narrative. I really feel like there's a lot more that we can do for our health than what we're told and what we think that we can do. And once I found out that Alzheimer's affects two thirds of patients of Alzheimer's patients affects women, that really, really affected me. That stat blew my mind and it made me realize that you know, I, as a holistic nutritionist, I eat whole foods. I, I normally live a very healthy lifestyle, but I felt like knowing that information, I needed to kick my own optimal health protocols up a notch. So then once I found out about Dr. Bredesen's work and others, I started to going to a ton of functional medicine web conferences in the States on brain health, on just chronic illness and how to basically prevent it for myself and hopefully slow the progression for my mom. Yeah, I just, I really wanted to help my mom, but then also reduce my chances. And that's when I found out, I, then I started looking into the work of Dr. Bruce Lipton, which led me down the road of epigenetics and his discovery on epigenetics and that our genetics are really a very, very small they make a very small impact on what our predispositions of disease can be. It's more our lifestyle choices, which either impact 
us getting a chronic illness or not getting a chronic illness. And once I found that out, that's when the whole book was written. And I became super passionate about doing it for myself, all of the biohacking tools and all of the holistic tools I started using. That's when I really realized that 80% of our health destiny is on our depends on what we do in our lifestyle and not genetically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. A lot of the things that you're saying really resonate with me. I had kind of a similar experience where is a little bit different, but I saw one of my parents go through something health related. And it very much like, even I was pretty healthy already at that point. This was a few years ago, but it really solidified this idea of preventative medicine, preventative health. And what can I do today so that I can prevent serious health issues that come like with age, quote unquote, right? When you're 60s or whatever age that you're thinking of. And I find that There's not a lot of people who think like this when you're younger, right? There's not a lot of people who are like, oh my gosh, I don't want to get this when I'm 70. What can I do today when I'm in my 20s? Like people, I don't know if people don't care. It's more of like, it's just not front of mind. And there's kind of like this sense of immortality when you're younger, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, So I'm curious for you, like, how did you navigate that shift of like, whoa, this could actually happen to me when I'm older. I, I, things need to be, I need to take this a bit more seriously. Like, how did that play out for you mentally? Yeah. Once I started seeing the, just to bring it back a little bit. So my grandmother had Alzheimer's, my grandmother's sisters had Alzheimer's. So we always knew that it was in the family. But like you said, when you're younger, you never really think that it's going to actually impact you. How wonderful. Ignorance is bliss at times. (laughs) Yeah. But once I started to go deeper in the stats and understanding more of what the biomarkers are of Alzheimer's, and we can get into that, and knowing that Alzheimer's starts 20 years before symptoms appear, that and the ter- two-thirds of Alzheimer's patients is women, that just did something in me. And I'm a very logical type A kind of person. So knowing those stati- statistics it really kind of solidified, oh my God, I need to do something. Because at the moment, I'm 44 years old. This is the prime, prime time for me to actually make an impact in the lifestyle choices that I'm choosing to do right now to prevent chronic illness, specifically Alzheimer's, or to increase my chances of getting Alzheimer's. I have maybe five years left before I reach menopause. And studies are showing over and over and over again that especially Lisa, Dr. Lisa Moscone's work on brain health specifically for women, she's amazing, that menopause really, really makes a either, either positive or negative impact on your chances of getting Alzheimer's. And I look back on my mom's past and just symptoms that, again, I was naive and I just didn't have the information. I didn't have the knowledge at that time. But I do remember at a certain time in her life, she was obviously going through menopause and having symptoms, but it just came down to the typical answer of, oh, you're going through menopause. Here's an antidepressant or oh, hot flashes, that's just a normal thing. There's nothing you can do about it. No, eating different foods, it's not going to make a difference. It's basically just accept it and this is how it is. And I just, again, refuse to think that way because I just don't think that that's really how it works. So again, once I found out that Alzheimer's starts 20 years before symptoms appear, I am in the exact time that I really need to do as much as I can in order to go through menopause and perimenopause in a healthy way. Do you ever feel frazzled, not grounded, stressed, and like you have way too much on your plate? Of course, you know you should be taking time for self-care, but doesn't mean you actually are, and it kind of just feels like another thing on your to-do list. I have definitely been there. It's tough to kind of balance everything these days. 
especially for those of us working from home with extra side hustles and or kids. Stress reduction feels like a nice idea, but never something easily achievable in the moments when we need it the most. I believe in solutions that use science to help us be healthier on a daily basis, but without crazy technology or tools that aren't accessible or affordable for everybody. I use Sensate, which is something that I've been using for a long time now, and I spoke about a lot last year, which is a groundbreaking innovation in wellness technology that uses the natural power of sonic resonance to calm your body's nervous system, providing immediate immediate, let me tell you, relief and long-term benefits from regular, regular use. It calms your nerves and helps you feel better in as few as 10 minutes per day. It improves stress resilience to help you cope with whatever life throws at you. And it increases heart rate variability, a known biomarker of health and longevity. This is so important because for many of us, our body's built-in stress management system is simply just an overdrive. Sensate's novel patented technology was designed to send infrasonic waves through the chest to reach the vagus nerve that sits deep in the core of our nervous system. By speaking to our body's command center, we can control how we respond to all the positive and negative things that we experience each day, which is just so cool and such an easy, easy biohack to bring in every day. You can use my discount code, which is BiohackingBrittany in all capitals. I will put the link in the show notes and it's on my shop page at biohackingbrittany.com and you get $25 off today. If you have any questions about it or when you get it, please message me. I'd love to chat as this is one of my favorite biohacking tools to use on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. My fiance's grandmother passed away from Alzheimer's and it was pretty like, of course, it's devastating when you see anybody go through that. And I've known that it's been more prevalent in women, like from when I've briefly studied it. So do you think that the prevalence in women is because of the shifts that we go through during menopause and like hormonally, or why do you think that it's more prevalent in women? Yeah, you got it right there. I do think that. And I think that just because of the work that I've seen with specifically women scientists looking into. Yeah, I do believe that, again, we're taught that women and men are only different because we can give birth and they can't and that there's not that big of a difference. And it's just so more and more science that's coming out. It's just where our brains are different. Our gut is different. It's made differently. Like we have a womb, they don't. It's just unbelievable. The more science that we're doing specifically for women, we're realizing how different we really are. And for some women that have hormonal issues before they reach perimenopause or before they reach menopause, if that isn't balanced out during that critical time of perimenopause, they will have that much more of a chance of having imbalances in their menopausal years. The drop in estrogen after menopause impacts our brains in a huge, huge way. And for many women, they can have that impact or that drop in estrogen and not have a problem. And it goes back to its natural state after a couple of years. But for a lot of women, that drop in estrogen affects them in a much more impactful way. And also then there's the genetic side, right? Like I, for many people, they don't want to know what their genetic predisposition is to certain genes with that can be connected to Alzheimer's, specifically the ApoE4 gene. And because they think that if they know their status on ApoE4, that, well, if they've got both genes or if they have one, there's no point in doing anything. This is their destiny. They're going to get Alzheimer's. And it's simply not true. And this was very empowering for me when I found that out. And it encouraged me again to find out what my, what my Apple E4 status was so that that really just made me be like, okay, if I have one gene or if I have two genes, this is going to make me work even harder and make sure that I do everything that I can in order to prevent Alzheimer's and knowing that 
80% of lifestyle factors is what will either determine whether I know, whether or not I get it. That empowered me again. If I found out my Apple E4 status and knew scientifically that there was nothing I could do about it, that would be terrible. I'd be living, waiting for Alzheimer's to happen. But that's not the case. And that's a big message that I want to get out there to women specifically that if you do have an Apple E4 gene, even if you, too, if you do have two alleles, two alleles increases your risk by fivefold. It's huge. And having one allele, one Apple E4 gene, it increases your risk by about 20 or 30 fold. So yes, it does increase your risk, but that does not mean you get it. And there's many, many women and men out there that have two Apple E4 alleles that do not have Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find DNA is so interesting now, especially because there's so many at-home test kits that you can do. And I've had my DNA tested for all of these different health concerns. And the thing with DNA is that it's a blueprint, right? And that's all it is. It's a starting point. There's nothing you can do to change it. Your expressions, like whether you have some variation in your gene or you don't, there's nothing you can do, but it's really helpful to have the information, right? Just because you don't get tested doesn't mean it's actually not happening or you don't have the gene variations that can lead to these things, right? So you can't like the ignorance is bliss doesn't really work for it. I feel like get the information, get tested, but then exactly like you said, like understand that this is only a starting point and that's it. This does not determine your life or your health outcomes at all. Like epigenetics is a major factor and you can choose whether that gene turns on or off. Absolutely. Yep, exactly. And that's what I want as many people to know as possible. Because once I found out my status, it really just it really just made me be like, okay, you know what? I got to be on this because I do have more of a risk. Okay, let's do, I, I apparently have more of a risk of having type two diabetes. It's never going to happen because of the lifestyle choices I choose to take on and to take responsibility for, right? So yeah, the, the lifestyle choices that I've chosen over the last, I would say probably six years, my mom was diagnosed about seven years ago. And then I just went deep and then started implementing all of the lifestyle choices to help prevent that and helped my mom along the way. It, it's changed. It's completely changed my life. And, and I just want more and more people to know what they could do to help prevent that. And it's not even help prevent Alzheimer's. It's just help prevent overall chronic illness because chronic illness today it's not, it's not like diseases that are acute diseases. Chronic illnesses today are basically here because of our lifestyle choices, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think a lot of people, unless you are a biohacker or a nutritionist or something like that, uh, I don't know if a lot of people like to accept that or agree to that because then that means that they have to take responsibility for what is happening to them. Exactly. Whereas, whereas like it's much easier to blame it on genetics and, oh, it's in my family and I had nothing to do with it. You know, like it's so much easier to dismiss it like that than to say, you know what, this actually started 20 years ago. I've been living very unhealthy and now I have to live in the consequences, right? No one is talking like that. No one wants to admit that. So yeah, it's interesting. The I, I don't remember where I heard this. I think it was a few years ago, but I think it must it must have been a podcast. But someone was talking about Alzheimer's, and I've heard it a few times. And they were saying that some researchers and doctors now are kind of calling it the type three diabetes mm-hmm. because of the pathology and how similar it is to type two, type one diabetes in the body. Have you heard this? And like, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, I have heard this. Dr. Mark Hyman talks about this and Dr. Bredesen speaks about it as well. So that is one, basically, if you start to read the work of Dr. Bredesen, he has a great book, I think, I believe it's called End of Alzheimer's. And he breaks 
the the reason for getting Alzheimer's into about four to five subtypes. And one of those subtypes is glucose, not being able to break down glucose properly, like basically type three diabetes, just having insulin resistance. And that in turn causing issues in the brain to like the brain can't use glucose properly. And therefore it starts to accumulate the amyloid beta plaque and the toe proteins and just causes dysregulation of blood sugar within the brain. And that's the, that's the subtype of type three diabetes. And that's why for one of my biohacks to prevent Alzheimer's, it's making sure that I balance my blood sugar and in turn balance my insulin, right? I want to be insulin sensitive and not insulin resistant resistance. That's really what you want to get to. The blood sugar is kind of like the symptom, but as you know, and I'm sure other biohackers know, the real route that we want to get to is the insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so other subtypes that Dr. Bredesen speaks about is hormone dysregulation. So there could be there could be a progesterone estrogen imbalance just be- because of menopause. There could be a thyroid DHEA imbalance. So there's that hormone part. And then there's the toxic subtype that it is a lot of the times. And so each person will have a more powerful subtype, but most of the time, unfortunately, it's not just one subtype. Like I wish that my mom's subtype was type three diabetes. No problem. I'll get that resolved and fixed within three months and bing, bang, boom. There's no such thing as Alzheimer's anymore. But for most people, they've got like a a specific subtype that is most predominant and then they've got underlying ones. And so the third one is toxic. And that has to do with stealth infections like Lyme or mycotoxin exposure or heavy metal exposure, having Epstein-Barr virus when you were a kid. And viruses never leave our body. They just go dormant. And again, it depends on the lifestyle factors that we choose to live. It depends on whether they wake up again or if they just stay dormant and stay in their place. And then the last subtype or one of the last subtypes um, that I can remember is head injuries, head traumas. Head traumas like concussions can make a huge, huge difference in whether you increase your risk of it getting Alzheimer's, especially if you have a predisposition with that APOE4 allele that I was speaking about, you have more of a chance of increasing the risk of Alzheimer's if you have the APOE4 and you get head traumas. So those, that's like the four, and, and I know there's one more subtype that I can't recall, but those are the four subtypes of why someone would present symptoms of Alzheimer's. It's not just one thing. And when I saw that information, that then said to me, oh, then all of these research, all this research that's going into trying to find a medication or that one magic pill that's going to get rid of Alzheimer's is a waste of money. It is not going to fix the, as Dr. Bredesen says, 36 holes in our brain. It might help with one, but again, with functional medicine, we're always trying to get to the root. And there's usually never just one reason why an imbalance happens. It's It's a cascade of things. So once I realized that, my hope for a magic pill to come out and relieve everyone's suffering of Alzheimer's, it's just, I don't really, I really don't believe that that's what's going to happen. Because millions of dollars have been spent on so many different drugs like Aricept, which by the way, work a little better on men for reducing, for slowing the progression than they do on women. And again, a little note, most drug trials are studied on men and not on women, which just blows my mind. And 98%, 98 98.9% of drug trials have failed in order to eliminate Alzheimer's. So we need to start thinking in a different way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, it's not surprising that the idea of a pill won't fix such a complex condition, right? Like I, I think we we would love that, right? Pop this pill and it's this prescription drug and it's going to be fine. But 
there's no quick fix for something that starts developing 20 years beforehand. That's just ridiculous <laughs> to think that way. But it's also sad too, right? Like I imagine being on the flip side of this and being older and maybe starting to present some of these symptoms and then coming to that realization of, oh, maybe, okay, this was, this did start 20 years ago, but I can't go back and change the last 20 years. So what can I do right now if I am starting to have some of these symptoms of brain issues? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And that's kind of where we were, where we were at the beginning with my mom. Right. And just to note too, like Alzheimer's is, I mean, I haven't gone through too many traumas in my life, but this is definitely the biggest trauma that I have gone through so far. And the impact that it makes on not just the person that's going through uh, that has Alzheimer's, but what it does for the caretakers and the loved ones around them, it's, it actually, as the disease progresses, it becomes harder on the caretakers and the loved ones than it does on the person that actually has Alzheimer's, which is a blessing for them. And it's a serious journey if you choose to to look into why this has happened. And at first with me, I felt like victimized in a way, like how could this possibly happen to my mom? She was healthy and my dad and her are just about to, like they've moved to the island to retire and they're about to start their second chapter in their lives and their 50th anniversary just happened. And how could this happen? And I lived in that energy for a really long time. And so did a lot of people that are close to my mom and dad as well. And eventually I realized that doesn't serve me. And then I realized how much stress impacts my chances of getting Alzheimer's and what it does to my blood sugar and my cortisol and all of that. So just to go back to your question, once when if someone does find out that they have early stages of mild cognitive impairment or of Alzheimer's, the first thing that I would look into would be to find a practitioner that is knowledgeable and believes, first of all, believes that there is a possibility of reversing or slowing the progression. Because when we went to our allopathic doctor and we were told that she has Alzheimer's, it was get everything in place. There's really nothing you can do, just support her and here are the steps and stages of Alzheimer's and this is what you're going to go through. And so the most important thing, find someone that has studied it and believes that it is possible to reduce the progression or slow the, slow the progression or absolutely reverse it. Because Dr. Bredesen has shown that there's studies, you can check it out. It's not, uh, it's not fake news. And then the next thing I would first start with the easiest subtype, which would be the type three diabetes, check out your diet, see what you're actually eating. Are you metabolically flexible? That's one of the biohacks that I have tended to for the last seven years. I have worked really hard on becoming metabolically flexible, where I can switch from using glucose as my energy or to ketones as my energy. And I do that by practicing different forms of fasting, but on a regular basis, time-restricted eating. I never eat longer than I fast during the day. And my time-restricted eating hours change. We're cyclic beings. We need to change it up. But I will always fast longer in a day than I will eat. And then if I can eat, and that's either 1014 or 168. And again, as a woman, it depends on where I am in my cycle. When I'm about to ovulate or when I, before I'm about to ovulate, I tend to fast longer. If I'm on my period and I'm within the, the first 14 days of my cycle, I can fast longer. And then after that, when I need to build progesterone, I'm not going to fast as long. I can do 10-14. I can even do 12-12. But I always try to make sure that even when I do do that, I eat my carbs at night. And when I say carbs, I'll have a little bit of rice at times. I'll have sweet potatoes. I'll just eat my more sugary car carbohydrates at night so that during the day, I can try to stay in ketosis. So my first meal 
will be more veggie fat protein and stay in ketosis. And then at night, and when I say at night, I eat between four and five for dinner and then nothing after that. So a typical day of time-restricted eating right now would be I eat my first meal at 10 and then I eat at five and finish at six. And when I eat, I eat a lot. People are always shocked at how much I eat. But when I eat, I eat a lot and I eat nutrient-dense so I feel satiated throughout those times. The other thing too, when I feel more stressed out, when I'm going through really hard times and I'm really stressed, I won't um, do as much time-restricted eating because time-restricted eating, it's a form of, you talk about this as well, it's a form of hormetic stress. It's great at times, but if we're already stressed out and our adrenals are attacked and our cortisol is up, really we're doing a disservice at that time we need to nourish and nourish with nutrient-dense food. So I know that was a long answer to the question, but that would be the first thing that I'd look into. I would look into blood sugar balance and get your fasting insulin checked. Don't just get your fasting glucose checked, get your fasting insulin checked and see where you're at and use functional medicine levels and not the traditional levels of of fasting insulin and fasting blood glucose so that you're optimal. You're not just like average, oh, you're not going to die. It's more like, oh, you are optimal. Your fasting insulin is fantastic. Okay, great. Let's continue down that path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had it tested a few times and I've had my own, I guess it's not a CGM, but it's like, it's called keto mojo. And you like prick your finger and you take your blood and you test your ketones and you test your uh, glucose. And it's really interesting because like you said, like you can find the data online on on what your levels are supposed to be. This is not like hidden information. Yeah. It's playing with it is very cool. I kind of stopped doing it as often. I think my plan for next year when it comes to Canada is I'm going to get a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, probably by the, the company called Levels. I don't know if you've ever heard of them but they're basically taking the world by storm, but they're not in Canada yet. It's quite expensive, mind you. But is that something that you would consider as part of this like preventative kind of protocol that you're going with? Yeah, I wouldn't. It honestly depends on the individual. So I got, I'm I'm like you, like give me any kind of biohacking tool. I'm going to nerd out and check out my levels and then use it as like my, base point and then learn to not need those tools anymore and just become, you know, so aware in my body that I know it, I don't need like a tool, an external tool to tell me. But I had the the Abbott blood sugar testing where I like stuck it to my, to the back of my arm. And so that's not a continuous blood glucose monitor. I can't remember the name of it, but the, what you're speaking about would definitely, what they say is much more accurate. I found it so inaccurate that it just irritated me that everything I was eating, it was like going to my blood sugar was totally going down or totally going up. It just made no sense. And honestly, it was weird, but I felt the little thing inside my arm. And I just, it made me think EMF And I was like, I'm not down with this because I had to put my phone to it, right? To see, to get the, the reading or the little thing that the little machine that comes along with it. And after I, on I have to say, I didn't use it for very long. After two weeks, I was done. I'm like, I'm over it. I'm just going to go with what I really, I'll I'll just become more and more aware in my body. And I'm just going to go with that instead of using the blood sugar monitor. I know a lot of people love it. A lot of people get benefit from it. I think it depends on the individual and what would they, would they make dietary changes if they saw that your blood, their blood sugar went up or went down? Like it, would it be a powerful tool for them? So it definitely has its place. It has definitely helped a lot of people. I think it just depends on the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. Like for myself, I'm pretty aware of eating something super carby and getting super energized from it and then having a drop an hour later, right? Like I'm very much aware of the blood sugar cycle. 
And so I, I keep that in mind when I'm eating, adding healthy fats, adding protein, kind of balancing out the meals like you do. But my partner, I think he would really benefit from the data because as much as he understands it, it's kind of, it doesn't really mean as much. And But if he was able to like see the numbers and for something to say, look, like this is the diabetic range that you're in now because of what you ate, it would probably be pretty shocking. And I, I'm assuming for the average person as well, it would be pretty shocking that like, whoa, this is actually what this is doing to my body. And again, like if you have diabetes in your family as well, like I think as well, like it could be very, very beneficial. Absolutely. And the other thing that people can do if they, cause they are expensive too, right? If they can't afford that, like before I got the, um, the monitor, I was just using, I was using keto sticks and I was using blood sugar sticks. And I would, when I first started practicing different forms of fasting and time restricted eating and what I was eating, I would take my level of blood sugar and ketones first thing in the morning. And then after lunch, after what I ate, I would see what my ketones would be at and what my blood sugar would be at. And then, so I'd take it like three times a day. And that after a while, your fingertips become sore and you don't want to constantly do that. (laughs) But for two weeks of practice and using that as a holistic tool to, again, the whole point, you want to become metabolically flexible and you want to become, you want to use those external tools to become more aware so you don't need them anymore or, or less, right? So I think a lot of people would benefit from that for two weeks, whether using the, just the old school sticks or using the monitor that you just keep on your body. And the other things that were, are really important to look at when it comes to lifestyle in order to prevent chronic illness, but specifically Alzheimer's is sauna. I swear by a sauna. I actually miss my sauna deeply now that I'm in Mexico. Although I can sit outside, it's just not the same thing. The time-restricted eating, the blood sugar balance, again, by watching what you eat, but also introducing some form of time-restricted eating, depending on what works. And two other things, eliminating stealth infections. Another thing I did for myself and my mom was do a heavy metal test and do a Great Plains mycotoxin test. And that I think personally for me, I did a mycotoxin test. I found I had mold inside of me. I had no idea. The only symptom I had was just this little rash around my nose. And I had it since I moved to the island, very strange. Before that, I didn't have it. And I lived in the middle of the forest, right? In a rainforest. And so it doesn't surprise me that mold grows much more on the island and in BC in general than it would say in Calgary, Alberta, which is where I lived before. And so that again was a blessing. Like I took that test. I found out I had mycotoxins. I did a six month mold elimination mycotoxin protocol. And I just took the works of many brilliant functional medicine doctors and naturopaths and combined it and made my own protocol. And then six months later, 95% of the mycotoxins were gone. And so for me, that's like, I am going to continue doing that, that Great Plains mycotoxin test, not regularly, but every couple of maybe once a year or every couple of years, I am going to check in on that and make sure that my mycotoxin levels are low or that there's nothing because I know that that increases my risk of Alzheimer's. And then other things like Lyme or having Epstein-Barr virus, that a lot, over 80% of people have Epstein-Barr virus and they don't even know that they've had it, right? And again, like we spoke about at the beginning, the viruses never go away. They just lay dormant. And so making sure that they stay dormant by practicing certain lifestyle um, choices, that reduces your risk of Alzheimer's. And then the last one is sleep. And I can talk about sleep all day until I go to bed. It is probably, I would say, probably one of the most fundamental, essential tools that people could start to implement in their optimal health protocol or lifestyle, and it will make a huge impact. And I know you're all over this too. Sleep, it's just, it, it, 
when we sleep, it's when we heal. And I didn't know that. I had no idea about that until I again went into, started taking functional medicine conferences and reading the work of Matthew Walker, When We Sleep or Why We Sleep, such a great, great book. And it's when our brain clears out all of that, those accumulated plaque proteins and the toe proteins. And when our glymphatic system, glymphatic, not lymphatic, our glymphatic system opens up. When we sleep, apparently, according to Sarah Gottfried, on our right-hand side, it's best. At a certain time at night, depending, uh, and at a certain sleep phase that we're in, our cerebral spinal fluid comes up above in our spine into our head and floods our brain. Our, bread, our, our brain cells shrink by 60% so that the cerebral spinal fluid could go in and cleanse out all of the accumulated toxins and dead cells and whatever it needs to get rid of detox in at night. And so if we don't sleep well continuously, that is just going to increase our chances of, again, Alzheimer's by increasing the possibility of more amyloid beta plaque inside our brain and disturb uh, glucose regulation. So the more I feel like I can educate people on why sleep is so important, and like I'm not even getting into balancing circadian rhythm and making sure that we use blue blockers at night so that we're not imbalancing that circadian rhythm so that we can increase our melatonin production so that we can sleep better. And melatonin is an anti super powerful antioxidant. We need all of these things. And living in the society we do today, we're watching Netflix until 11 or 12 at night without blue blockers. And we are not, we're not secreting melatonin. And again, we have, we have internal clocks. Our liver has an internal clock. Our pancreas has an internal clock. Apparently the clock of the pancreas just naturally turns off at about 7 PM. So that's why really we shouldn't eat after that. If we eat after that, we're then turning off all of the nighttime processes that need to happen at night. And we are keeping our pancreas going, therefore keeping insulin up, therefore keeping our blood sugar up, therefore keeping our cortisol up. It's just like a vicious cycle, right? So starting to understand circadian rhythm and honor the rhythms and our, the cycles of us being human will in turn help prevent chronic illness and, and help prevent Alzheimer's. Yeah, honestly, there's so much that we can do. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And there's so many, there's just so many tests and, and things that you can do. And that's a good thing, right? The point is not to be overwhelmed that you need to do all of these like tests and biohacks and change how you eat. The point is that you actually do have a lot of control. And so you can start exactly. somewhere and build on it. And I've been tested for a lot of what you've talked about. I actually haven't done the mycotoxin test, which is interesting. makes me want to do it. But I did a, um, I've done a live blood cell analysis test a few times and I actually have Epstein-Barr virus. And like you said, like I had no idea. And she's like, yeah, it's dormant. You have no symptoms. It's fine. Like, just so you know, just be aware of it. And I was like, cool. I was like, is there anything I can do? And she's like, I mean, not really. If it's alive and active, then you can look at like detoxification and like cleansing and, and all of that type of thing. But it's, it's interesting again. And it's kind of like the point we said about the DNA is like, it's better to just know than not know, even though you're, you might get results back that are, could be negative. Like it's still better to have that information than kind of just be flying blind and not really sure what's actually going on in your body. So I agree. I think so as well. And I, I have EBV as well, Epstein-Barr virus. When I was a teenager, I had mono and I had no idea that really it can impact. It, it, it makes a huge difference in Hashimoto's and your thyroid health. A lot of the root issues to thyroid health is because of Epstein-Barr virus. And, um, there have been, I haven't done this yet for myself, but I will at some point explore cordyceps and olive leaf extract 
to help eliminate the strength of the dormant Epstein-Barr virus, if I could put it that way. Because there, so there are things that can be done, even if it's not active. I think that there's a lot of things that can be done in order to just weaken it as, as much as possible. And olive leaf extract is actually a huge antiviral that I use to, in my mold protocol, in my mycotoxin protocol. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. So, have you looked at or have you done neurofeedback? I haven't done neurofeedback. It's on my list of things that I want to do. It's definitely something I want to explore. Another thing that I haven't mentioned is the whole kind of mind-spirit connection to Alzheimer's. And this is something that I've witnessed myself over the last eight years of being my mom's caretaker with my dad. I have learned a lot about programming the brain and how to deprogram it and to take what you feel serves you and to learn to become aware of what's not serving you and to learn to reprogram that. I guess really the work of Joe Dispenza, who I'm very inspired by, has helped me realize that just worry itself, just that constant busy mind and never feeling at ease and constantly worrying about things. That's something that I witnessed in my mom and I didn't realize it because it was just like, it was just like a normal thing growing up. That's how it was. And then I, when I realized that it can make a huge impact on our hormonal level, what it does to the neurons in our brain. And that's when I started to explore Joe Dispenza's work and start to work on the whole spirit side and learn to become more at ease and all of that. There's, like you said, there's so much to it. And again, I don't want to overwhelm people. I do just want people to work with practitioners that know the ins and outs and where to start someone, right? That's why people go see practitioners like us or like other people that We'll look at them in mind, body, soul, see the type of personality they are and see them as a biochemical individual person. So I could give one of my clients the whole list of things to do and they'll come back in a week later and be like, okay, give me more. And then I have clients who are like, I can only take on one thing. And it's like, okay, what would be the most impactful thing that we can do right now? And then we'll go to the next thing later. And that's what the benefit is of working with somebody after they've even, you know, read Dr. Bredesen's book or other work on Alzheimer's prevention or just optimal health, whatever they're interested in, and then seeing how, what lifestyle tools they can bring in to just get that much closer to optimal health. That's my life's work. It's not like I'm at my optimal, just I get optimal and then there's another optimal, as you know, like that's why (laughs) we biohack, right? Yeah discover things, we fix that imbalance or try to regulate it as best as we can. And then we go on to other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's never, there's never really a destination, I would say. No. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's just a journey. Like it it just is. And it's going to, it's going to be like that. Like you heal one thing and then you're good. And then something weird starts to happen and you have to heal something else. And that's because life happens and we just experience different things. I had really bad gut health issues for a long time and now I don't, but then I had skin issues and now I don't. And now I'm just kind of chilling and trying to regulate my menstrual cycle. And that's where I'm at. And, and everyone kind of has that health journey. And so it would be amazing though, to kind of reach this like destination of optimal health and be able to stay in it for the rest of your life. But it's just not realistic. But that's a false narrative, right? Mm. We're fed that narrative. We're like, oh, if you just eat well and don't smoke and exercise, you're going to be great. And you know, that again, doesn't take into account biochemical individuality. And when people suffer with chronic illnesses, I have stage four endometriosis. So for the last 25 years of my life, I was told, oh, just get this operation, you'll be better. Okay, I get the operation, I'm good for a year, six months, and then it, I have flare-ups again. And so it's been this journey of coming to terms with, I'm doing my best to prevent flare-ups, but will 
every time I think, oh, I've, I've, okay, I've cut out dairy, everything's going to be perfect now. And then I get a flare up and I become so disappointed. And I'm like, oh, this is useless. I'm so disappointed. And it sets me back. Now, the way I think is, okay, I have a flare up. I, I examine, okay, what have I done? Am I under stress? Did I eat something I shouldn't have? But you know what? It's okay. Next month, it will be better. And if it's not, that's okay. It's a flare up. It's it chronic illness. There has to be some form of acceptance, not okay. I have it and there's nothing I can do about it, but more, I accept the times where it's really hard and realize that it's not always going to be like this. As long as I take responsibility for my health and try my best to balance the imbalance. Now, with that said, I've been trying for eight years to help my mom and everything I've done, unfortunately, hasn't worked the way I would have liked it to. But I don't know what I have done if it has helped slow the progression. Maybe it has. Maybe she'd be worse off where she is now. But I don't know. And I do feel like at some point with the progression of Alzheimer's, the brain just becomes so desensitized and so it loses so many neuron connections that at the moment it's kind of inedible for many people, but for many people it's not. And I think that's a message that we need to start spreading because it's true. It's not like I'm making this up. It, it is true that we can do so many things to help prevent, reverse, prevent, or, or slow the progression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's what most people, I think that's what people will get, will take away from this is there is so much that you can do and you have so much power and that's very liberating, right? That's very, very liberating. And I found that liberating too, when I started my own healing journey, it was like, cool. Like I can actually do so much for my mental health, my emotional health, my physical health, and I'm going to do it. And it, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it takes a lot of time. Um, it is. But and it, you know, so many of the things are free. Huge. Yes. Yep. Yes. I, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Like, yeah, so many of the things are free. The time-restricted eating, the sleeping, that's like the best free thing. Well, free. Yes, sleeping is free, but I would always recommend for people to get blue blocker glasses because it makes a huge difference. So yeah, you would be investing a little bit of money, but so many of the things, just going for a walk, just reducing your stress. There's a lot of things that can be done without having to have a lot of money. And that's part of the reason why I wrote my book, Two Little F Words, because two of the most powerful holistic tools that I've implemented were the feasting and fasting. And the feasting part cost me nothing. The fasting, I was able to put a little bit of, sorry, the fasting cost me nothing. And the feasting enabled me to put a little bit more money into quality whole foods when I did eat because I ate less often and I ate within a restricted time. So just those two holistic tools can make a huge impact on one's life. And with the recipes that I've put in the book, everything's gluten-free. There's no refined sugar. In most, if I do any baking, it's like less than two tablespoons of honey or maple syrup in 12 muffins. It's a very it caters to the lower, lower carb lifestyle. But what it does also do is for people that a lot of people can't go extreme. So because it doesn't become a lifestyle. So it's like, I could tell people, yeah, go ketogenic for a certain amount of time and start fasting long, like super long times. And for some people that works, but for the majority of people, it's, they're going to use it as a diet. And I don't want what I speak about in my book used as a diet. I want it to become a lifestyle. So I still want people to be able to eat super delicious food, not hard to make, but doesn't contain the gluten that will wreck our gut. A gut health was another and is another super important part for Alzheimer's prevention. So I know that you wrote a book that talks a lot about this in terms of fasting and when we should be eating, when we shouldn't be eating. So can you kind of dive into that and tell us more about it? 
Sure, I'd love to. So my book's called Two Little F Words, and it's it stands for Feasting and Fasting, Your Way to Optimal Health. I can't believe I wrote a book as a chef and nutritionist and never thought I would, but it has organically happened ever since my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And the purpose of this book was to share, once I started diving deep into Alzheimer's and Alzheimer's prevention, I found all of these little jewels as to why I should keep going on prevention instead of just giving in to a a diagnosis. And I learned that feasting and fasting were two really important tools to use in order to help prevent chronic illness and especially Alzheimer's. So the book consists of over 30 gluten-free, no refined sugar recipes, super easy to make. I'm a personal chef. So I go to people's homes and I cook their food for the week in one day. So these are recipes that I have made and created for so long with my personal chef clients. So they have to be easy to make. Um, Super nutrient dense. They go from different types of soup to delicious pineapple cake, carrot muffins, to making your own homemade almond, uh, coconut milk to applesauce to main dishes, Mexican shepherd's pie and different types of bread and crackers that are really easy to make. And then at the beginning of the book, I, I speak about how to start practicing time-restricted eating, basically the profitable betrayal of refined carbohydrates. That's one of the chapters. Another chapter is understanding carbohydrates carbohydrates, the narrative is that they're terrible for us. Well, certain types of carbohydrates are, but others are really good for us. And then I talk about my story and share my story and tell people that, you know, the dose makes the poison and that accumulation matters just because we can eat something that we might be sensitive to now, but it doesn't really cause us problems. Over time, as we age, it's going to start to accumulate and like gluten for many tear those little holes in our intestinal gut lining. And when we're younger, we can handle it. But then all of a sudden we reach our forties and fifties. And for some reason, we can't do the same thing as we did before. So my goal is to help people prevent that from even happening, but still enjoy super delicious meals. The the recipes blow my mind every time I share them with people. And I've started doing a lot of cooking classes online. If they go, if people go to check me out at honeyandvanilla.com, they'll learn about upcoming cooking classes. They can get my book there. They can read my blog articles that I do. I nerd out on everything optimal health from sleep to mycotoxins to all of that kind of stuff. And, and I'm going to be offering four to eight week courses for anything to do with optimal health in, in 2022. So I'm just excited to continue sharing what I'm doing for myself and then sharing with others and continuing to support and guide people that want to take responsibility for their health. And I can be there to support them and guide them just like you do, Brittany. Mm-hmm. That's great. I will definitely link to your book in the show notes so people can easily find it. And if they want to connect with you on social media and your website, where can they do that? Yeah, good call. So I am on Instagram on, at Honey and Vanilla. My name's Christina Acevedo, not avocado. A lot of people think it's avocado. Or they can go to my website, honeyandvanilla.com, and they can contact me from there. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah. I will link to that as well. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. Thanks for listening to another episode of biohacking with Brittany. If you're interested in finding the show notes or the sponsors for this episode, you can do so on my website, which is biohackingbrittany.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram where I'm most active. My handle is at biohackingbrittany. And if you're interested in working together and you want to email me directly, you can do that. My email is info at biohackingbrittany.com. And I look forward to hearing from you and having you tune in next week.